Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world, broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world, spreading the news and information. BlakeRadio.com, music for your mind, body, and soul. This is Dr. Jennifer Daniels, and you're listening to Healing with Dr. Daniels on the Blake Radio Network Rainbow Soul Channel. Okay, of course, we are broadcasting to you live from Panama. And tonight's topic is, is your doctor giving you grade B advice? Grade B, yes. This is a term made popular by the movie industry, generally a low-budget exploitation movie. So, are you getting exploited by grade B medical care? So tonight, I'm going to share some grade B recommendations with you, and these are rated grade B by the medical industrial complex itself. And uh, we're just going to take a look at these, and we're going to find out what the medical industrial complex says is grade B. And of course, we're going to use their definition to enhance our understanding, of course. So, Let's start off with, well, what's grade B? And so uh, the medical industrial complex uh, ranks recommendations in terms of grade B. So what I'm going to do is when we hit a word that is ambiguous, then we're going to look it up. Okay, here goes. So uh, the grade of recommendation here is grade 1B. That's what it is, B. It is a strong recommendation, moderate quality evidence, moderate quality of evidence. So what's moderate? Moderate is average in amount, intensity, quality, or degree. And synonym is average, modest, medium, middling, ordinary, common, tolerable, passable, adequate, fair, mediocre, unexceptional. And so this is a strong recommendation based on passable, mediocre evidence. Okay, clarity of risk benefit. So the benefits have to clearly outweigh the risks and burdens, or vice versa. So in other words, it has to be a clear uh, distinction between benefit and risk to the patient. When I say clear distinction, I mean you have to clearly be able to state what the benefit is. Okay, quality of supporting evidence. Here we go. So evidence from randomized controlled trials with important limitations. In order to get a grade B rated, the scientific evidence has to have important limitations, such as inconsistent results, a flaw in methodology, and it has to be indirect evidence or imprecise evidence. So this is the evidence that supports a grade B recommendation. So it has to be substantially flawed. 
So there has to be uh, also strong evidence of some other research design. So further research, if performed, is likely to have an impact on, that means change, our confidence in the estimate of benefit and risk. It may change the estimate. So further research, if performed, is likely to substantially change the recommendation. So we've got some pretty shaky ground here for grade B. And when they say in medical school, we know half of what we're teaching is false, we just don't know which half. What they're doing is basing the recommendations on grade B evidence. And this is some seriously flawed, imperfect evidence. In fact, you probably would not accept directions from GPS that was programmed according to this kind of evidence or database. So what's the implication? Again, this is medical ease, so we've got to put this in English. Strong evidence, I'm sorry, strong recommendation and applies to most patients. So based on this type of evidence, this is grade B, the recommendation would be strong and would apply to most patients. That means that some patients it would not apply to. Clinicians should, have, should follow a strong recommendation unless a clear and compelling rationale for an alternative approach is present. So the doctor has to follow this grade B recommendation unless he can show cause, substantial cause and reason why in this particular case he did not follow this recommendation. All right. So... This is uh, this is amazing. You know, you take a look at this stuff. It, it, well, I do anyway. I'm kind of hopeful that maybe it's not as bad as I thought, <laughs> and then I look further. So we have to start off with uh, with a headline that that really caught my eye. And at first, uh, I said, "Well, this is this is ridiculous. Of course, no one no one could even possibly support this." But it is. So let's take a look at what this is. Double booked surgeries, Royal, R-O-I-L, Royal Medicine. I'm not sure who's Royal, but double booked surgeries. That means two surgeries booked at the same time for the same surgeon, right? You can only be in one room if, if that. So let's see what they say. So a recent Boston Globe investigation into overlapping or double-booked elective surgeries at the venerable Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston has provoked debate and soul-searching in the medical profession. Now, this is important to get to the bottom of this and, and figure out what, if anything, is considered to be wrong with double-booking surgery. All right. So newspaper reported in October that Massachusetts General Hospital patients routinely were not told that their attending surgeon would be in charge of two operations at the same time, which is an informed consent issue. Surgical residents and fellows sometimes performed entire operations while a double-booked attending surgeon was elsewhere. And when we say elsewhere, we really don't know where elsewhere is. It could be in the other operating room, or it could be on the on the golf course, or it could be at his child's school play. We don't know where elsewhere is. I just want to point that out, that we can't assume that this surgeon showed up at either surgery. Okay. So surgical residents and sometimes perform entire operations while a double-buck attending surgeon was elsewhere. Other times, attendants could not come to an overwhelmed trainee's rescue promptly because they were delayed at another operating room. Similarly, patients would lay in prolonged states of anesthesia while the operating room team waited for a double book surgeon to arrive from another room, the newspaper reported. Now, we know that Alzheimer's is associated with prolonged anesthesia. So by prolonging the anesthesia time, due to double booking surgeries, this double booking of surgeries has long-term implications. Okay. Some physicians, including Medscape readers, view overlapping surgeries as one of medicine's dirty little secrets, driven by economics. 
As a resident, I was assigned to a surgeon who routinely booked two cases at the same time at two different hospitals. One reader said, commenting on a previous Medscape article about the practice, he got away with it most of his career, and it was all about the money. Other physicians defend the scheduling practice. Now, it's one thing for uh, the surgeons to defend this practice, but now we have Massachusetts General Hospital speaking up and saying, we defend the safety of this, these overlapping surgeries, and the Boston Globe story is an inaccurate picture. And so uh, complication rates for overlapping surgeries and non-overlapping surgeries are the same, and complications in the former kind are not linked to how the procedure is scheduled. So what they're saying is whether or not the surgeon does his own surgery has, doesn't affect the outcome. Now, for those of you who are sophisticated and you know keep up with prestigious hospitals, you know that Massachusetts General is a fairly prestigious hospital. And uh, many patients go through a lot of trouble to pick the best surgeon, which often ends up in their estimation to be at this hospital to do their surgery. So this is basically fraud. It's no accident that a person is having surgery at Massachusetts General Hospital. But then they find the surgery is being done by someone else. This is like saying, I paid for a Porsche and I got a Ford. And then the dealer says, that's okay, it still has four wheels. So this misrepresentation, fraud, endangerment, which is the increased time in anesthesia, which I pointed out before increases Alzheimer's later on, is uh, is shocking. But again, as Massachusetts General Hospital said, and according to medical standards, rightly so, that the complication rates are the same, therefore, no problems. And so this uh, old deal with an attitude is, uh, it, it's, it's really amazing when you consider the high prices people are paying to receive this care. And so, of course, I'm sure they can find a medical ethicist to justify this. But from the point of view of a patient, uh, the point is that this type of attitude is just casual, mediocre, grade B. And um, a lot of doctors, as they're becoming physicians and they witness this, many of them see that, oh my gosh, this is this is awful stuff. This is really uh, not right or illegal or not good stuff that they're being asked, these doctors are being asked to do. And so they actually aspire to get a job at Massachusetts General Hospital so that they can be protected by the institution. And so This is really actually quite rampant. And now, just by the way, the same doctor, even the same hospital administrator, who says it's okay to double book like this and give a patient a different quality care than what they paid for, would be enraged if he paid for a first-class airline ticket and was made to fly economy class. So this is what's happening in medicine. Even when you think you're getting what you paid for, you may not be. So let's take a look at some uh, recommendations that are, well, grade B. Okay, so let's take a look at fatty liver disease. So there are 21,000 new cases of fatty liver disease, liver cancer, every year. And this is uh, 7 per 100,000 Americans have life-threatening liver disease. Uh, but you have to do... 28,571 liver biopsies to find one case of life-threatening disease. And so the predictive value then of a fatty liver scan is just about zero. Um, in other words, one in 28,571. And, and this is an example of a grade B medical recommendation. And so, of course, if you have to do 28,571 liver biopsies in order to detect one case of life-threatening disease, that's pretty darn lucrative. Pretty darn lucrative. So 
What are some other grade B uh, recommendations? Well, diabetes is always a good one. <laughs> now, I'm telling you, the medical industrial complex itself says these are grade B recommendations. So, you know, I'm, this is not my assessment. All right, so let's take a look at this. Updated glucose screening guidelines. So the obesity epidemic in the United States has profoundly affected the prevalence of impaired glucose metabolism and type 2 diabetes. Now, notice that impaired glucose metabolism is not diabetes. So type 2 diabetes is something different. And so the recommendations from the U.S. Preventative Task Force, USPSTF, provide a brief overview of these disorders. They cite a study that found 12% of the U.S. population older than 20 had diabetes. Another 37%, so that's 37 plus 12, so a total of 49%, had either impaired fasting glucose or impaired glucose tolerance. So although the prevalence of diabetes was between 7% and 9%, it varied among people with different races, so Mexicans, Filipinos, African-Americans, Indians, Alaskan Indians, it varied. But basically, we're looking at something that's casting a pretty wide net here. So literally, 49% of Americans have been defined as diabetic or impaired glucose tolerance. So what are they recommending? So this task force has recommended screening for abnormal glucose as part of heart risk assessment in overweight or obese adults, 40 to 70 years old, and referral of those identified with abnormal glucose to intensive behavioral intervention to promote a healthful diet and physical activity. That's the recommendation. Now, the recommendation is given a B grade for moderate evidence of benefit. That means the evidence of benefit is passable, so-so, possible, plausible. And this is something, because it's grade B, doctors are obligated to follow. So the guidelines are based on the evidence of benefit or harm without consideration of cost. document was written by the 16-member panel with input from public comments to draft. To a draft. Okay. So what's the screening they recommend? So screening can be formed using, performed using fasting blood glucose, hemoglobin A1C, or oral glucose tolerance test, which is basically torture. They give you syrup and then measure your blood sugar for every hour to see the pattern of your blood sugar. We followed in a goal of three years for those found not to have abnormal glucose failures. So you should get screened once and then every three years. Now, those of you who are not aware, a person can become diabetic literally in a matter of weeks like one to four weeks, a person can, boom, become diabetic. That's what they're saying here then, really, is basically there's no evidence of benefit in treating someone the first, say, two, two and a half years of their disease. But for individuals found to have either impaired glucose tolerance, clinicians are advised to offer or refer to intensive behavioral counseling interventions to promote a healthful diet and physical activity. So they know that behavioral interventions are better than medicines. And we recommend screening for abnormal glucose because we see a benefit, but the benefit comes from big behavior changes. And to get these big behavior changes for the at-risk group, you need a big behavior intervention. Just doing the blood test isn't going to get you there. So they see a small benefit, which is caused by a big intervention. So the panel concluded there is not enough evidence that medications have the same benefits as behavioral interventions on people who are not yet diabetic. So those of you who are pre-diabetic and have impaired glucose tolerance, there is not enough evidence that medications are beneficial. And this is, don't think they haven't looked. Believe me, they have been looking certainly for as long as I've been in medicine, which is since 1979. And so from 1979 to 19, I'm sorry, 2016, they have failed to show that medications are helpful to people 
who do not yet fit the definition of diabetes. And so they decided that behavior intervention was, uh, there was evidence in support of that, and so people who are not normal but not diabetic should have behavioral therapy. Okay. And so the uh, professional response to this, by the way, is that the guidelines are too lax, we need more screening, and so they're saying it's shocking that the task force did not recommend more intervention because, of course, there's morbidity associated with diabetes. And diabetes screening should not just be one part of a heart disease assessment as it is in the prevention task force recommendation. So this is a grade B recommendation to get screened for diabetes every three years. And so now the doctors are saying that uh, the behavioral interventions for people who are found to have impaired glucose tolerance is the more important message from the stock because it's aimed at spurring changes in healthcare delivery. So the important emphasis is when healthcare providers find patients with these at-risk factors, how do they respond and how do they create in their practices or healthcare system the resources needed to help patients achieve these changes. Well, uh, no help there. Um, so they give you a list of behaviors that, that might help people, but uh, they don't tell the doctor what exactly he's supposed to do. So the Affordable Care Act does mandate that insurers cover services recommended as grade A or B. And what's happened here then is that the A is things that for which there is clear evidence, clear, firm evidence. But then you throw in Bs, and the Bs are things that have mm, maybe some, you know, kind of moderate, mm, passable. And so what we have then is a tremendous number of recommendations in the B category, and they just lumped together with the A recommendations. And so the highlights then are that there was not enough evidence to demonstrate that screening for empiric glucose metabolism directly reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease or death. So in other words, even if you detected that somebody has empiric glucose metabolism, the risk of death is not reduced by the early diagnosis. So two prospective studies evaluated the outcomes among adults screened for diabetes versus adults who were not screened, there was no difference in cardiovascular or total mortality in the two groups. So uh, then they said, regarding potential harm, screening for diabetes has been demonstrated to raise short-term anxiety. However, there's no evidence of long-term or severe negative consequences associated with screening. Now, the... So this is a, a case in diabetes where there's clear evidence that detecting impaired glucose tolerance or pre-diabetics is actually not medically beneficial to the person being screened. So that's the takeaway message here. Yet screening is still recommended. No problem. So let's take a look at another piece of Class B recommendation. Now this will shock you. Flu vaccine for all. A critical look at the evidence. Yes, this is a Medscape family practice. And the pro-medicine, pro-doctor site, and what they say is when vaccination became routine, So vaccine proponents felt that the failure of the vaccine was explained by immunization campaign beginning too little, too late. So when medicines fail, the excuse is always, oh, we should have given more. We should have started earlier. God, it would have worked if only we'd done more of it. As a result, in 1960, national health experts recommended for the first time 
routine annual vaccination of emphasis on high-risk groups, including those over the age of 65 and individuals with chronic illness. By the early 60s, routine influenza vaccination was generally adopted as a policy with very little supporting evidence. This is the doctor literature. You know, the doctor uh, literature. You say, hey, no evidence. And so the paper questioned whether widespread influenza immunization should be continued without better evidence to justify the major cost to the general public. Despite this, annual vaccination campaigns were continued. From 68, the CDC finally performed a randomized double-blind trial to examine the effect of vaccination on morbidity, that's harm, and mortality, that's death. And the authors concluded that despite extensive use of influenza vaccine, attainment of improved morbidity and mortality has never been demonstrated. Nevertheless, Flu immunization continues. So this is 1968. Uh, the CDC did its own study and said, you know what? There's no evidence. In 1976, a swine flu appeared and a large-scale effort to immunize as many Americans as possible was launched. However, the anticipated levels of disease did not appear and an epidemic of paralytic Guillain-Barre syndrome in recipients of vaccine led to the program's cancellation. That was 1976, so I entered medical school in 1979, and we had Guillain-Barre patients still at that point who uh, became paralyzed as a result of the 1976 uh, vaccine program. And I noticed that um, a lot of patients in my, actually pretty much all the patients in medical school uh, that I saw back then that had autoimmune disease, they were all middle class and wealthier. And this is in a medical school located in the middle of the ghetto of West Philadelphia. So an analysis in 1977 by the CDC concluded that influenza control had been generally ineffective and that statistically valid community trials were needed. So the influenza control was ineffective. 1995, major review from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration acknowledged the ongoing lack of randomized trial and warned about serious methodology flaws in many existing flu vaccine studies. So in 2000, the CD performed a placebo-controlled trial that found vaccination, when compared to placebo, may not provide overall economic benefit in most years. And so, they, so in 2000, the CDC looked back over the years, the flu shot was given and said, you know what, this really didn't uh, provide benefit. Nonetheless, in 2004, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommended annual flu shots for young children, household contacts, and health care providers. So vaccination coverage recommendations continued to expand, and now, during every flu season, we watch commercials by retail pharmacies telling us about the importance of getting the flu shot. The fact that the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends mandatory flu shots for healthcare providers means that eventually clinicians could be fired for not getting vaccinated. So, summing up the data. So, a 2012 review and meta-analysis examined the effectiveness of licensed influenza vaccines in patients with confirmed influenza illness. And the authors confirmed that the original recommendation to vaccinate the elderly was made without data for vaccine effectiveness or uh, safety. So the main message was that we need a better vaccine and better studies to demonstrate its effectiveness. Now, this is a very nice way of saying that the vaccine we have is not effective. So we need a better vaccine in order to demonstrate effectiveness, which means the present vaccine cannot demonstrate effectiveness because, of course, it's well, not effective. If you believe in scientific study, that's what the evidence shows. So despite the lack of high-quality data supporting, despite the lack of high-quality data supporting the value of the flu shot, widespread vaccination policy might still be reasonable if observational studies consistently showed a benefit. However, 
The observational studies cited by flu shot proponents are frequently flawed. Now, this is, remember, this is going from Medscape. This is a medical article, a medical publication, pro-doctor. In many studies, relevant clinical outcomes are ignored in favor of antibody response. So influenza-like illness, like cold symptoms, are are frequently measured instead of serious outcomes like pneumonia or death. So when these more serious outcomes are examined, there's often a failure to uh, control for the healthy user bias. So the inclination for healthier people to do things like receive annual checkups, eat healthier foods, and get the flu shot. So though it's true that people who get the flu shot live longer, it may have nothing to do with actually getting the flu shot. It has to do maybe with the other things that they're doing. And so this is an example of how doctors are beset with these recommendations that then they are compelled to follow. And in the case of being required to get a flu shot to keep one's job if the doctor's employed, or being required to have a certain vaccination percentage among one's patients in order to keep, say, um, a license or a certification or employment, it's a real problem when you have these edicts and recommendations being based on evidence like this. And so what they do here is they they have this um, kind of apology. Because we are pediatricians and we believe in childhood immunizations. So they're going to say, hey, we're not just questioning childhood immunizations. Because even as doctors, they don't want to bite off more than they can chew. But many vaccines have provided immense public health value. They don't know which ones, but there sure are some there. We simply question whether the policy of routine influenza vaccination has outpaced the data supporting its use. And so this is um, something that doctors are beginning to question. And again, based on the evidence, of course, there is no evidence supporting um, the use of the flu vaccine if what you're after is uh, improvement in the health of a population. So... In the case of the flu shot, there was never any evidence of benefit. No reduction in days lost from work, no reduction in days in the hospital, no reduction in death, nothing. So this is an example of definitely a grade B recommendation. So I'm going to pause for station identification. You're listening to Blake Radio Network. Rainbow Soul, and this is Healing with Dr. Daniels, and today's topic is, is your doctor making grade B recommendations? So are you being exploited by grade B recommendations, much like the exploitation films of grade B movies? I'd like to remind people that we have a chat room, chat going on at healingwithdrdaniels.com. Chetango.com, and people can call in to listen at 914-338-0695, and we'll be taking questions in a little bit. We have a few more grade B recommendations. This should be Bob. <laughs> Some pretty famous ones. But let's take a look at one cancer screen. This is a really high uh, emotional content topic, which is the, um, you know, screening people for lung cancer. And, of course, you know, one can always uh, save lives, of course, right? So let's see what we have here. So their panel says no to Medicare coverage for lung cancer screening. Okay. Let's hang our heads and moment of silence for this. So what's the deal? What's going on here? Well, it turns out the average person, just for your information, who's diagnosed with lung cancer is 70 years old. That doesn't mean you shouldn't screen for it. Just, just saying, 70 years old, which is, what are they? Medicare eligible. That's right. And so there happens to be a 7% chance of getting lung cancer. 
among Americans over 65. So 7% of them are going to get lung cancer. And if we assume a 100% death rate, uh, then what happens, so if we have 100 people, 7% of them are going to get cancer. And what they found is that 20% of those who received screening, their life is extended. They don't say how much, one day, one year, one month. We don't know. They don't say. So of these seven people out of 100 who have lung cancer, one of them will experience an extension of their life. In other words, six of the seven whose cancers are detected will not experience any benefit from having been screened. And obviously, the 93 out of 100 who didn't have lung cancer, excuse me, lung cancer, had no benefit at all either, right? So 7% cancer was detected, 93% no cancer detected. Of those 7%, only one of those percentage points was did the person have an extension of their life. So literally 99% of people screened for lung cancer do not benefit. So each year do not benefit. And so they want to they want the government, Medicare, to pay for a CT scan every year. So a CT scan costs one thousand two hundred dollars just for your information. So if we do that on a hundred people, that's hundred and twenty thousand dollars. $120,000 spent. It turns out that treating uh, lung cancer is pretty cheap, only $55,000, $55,600. And so if you treat uh, seven people uh, at that rate, that's $389,000. By the way, 21% of that is paid by the, uh, by the patient because Medicare doesn't cover it. But the total amount spent then is $509,000 per 100 people. Now, since it's a grade B recommendation, I guess you can see why it's a grade B recommendation, because at best, one person might benefit out of 100. So we have to ask, it seems to me, you have a grade B recommendation like this, you might want to ask each Medicare recipient if they would like to get screened for lung cancer or if they want $5,000 more in their Medicare check as you're free of taxes, because if it's $509,000 to screen 100 people, then it's $5,090 to screen one person. So why not give the person that money in their Medicare check? That comes up at $416 more a month increase in the check of Medicare recipients. That's, that's pretty darn good. I think many Medicare recipients would probably... Um, I go for that. But it's not about the patients. It's about the CT scan makers and the hospital revenues. So it turns out the average person with lung cancer lives two years, between two years and two years and nine months, with therapy. So paying $250,000 for each year of life, that is to say, if the therapy is effective, since the cure rate uh, of people living more than five years is so small, one can only say the cure rate is, is, is pretty poor. So doctors then are saying, hey, wait a minute. So evidence considered by the panel included results from the National Lung Screening Trial which showed that CT screening significantly reduces lung cancer death by 20% compared with chest x-rays. So the results have been hailed as a great step forward for lung cancer and have led to many medical societies recommending screening, including the National Comprehensive Care Network, and the American Cancer Society, among others. And so they issued a grade B recommendation for annual CT screening for lung cancer. And of course, you can see why. Because the benefit is basically $250,000 it costs to extend each person's life by uh, one year. And I dare say, if you ask a 70-year-old person, you want the quarter of a million dollars or do you want the chemo, they might decide to take the quarter of a million dollars. So under the Affordable Care Act, uh, any procedure that receives a grade B recommendation from the task force has to be covered by private insurers without a copay. However, 
The government Affordable Care Act does not specify that Medicare has to do so. So another case of the government exempting itself from rules it subjects others to. But the point here is we have a grade B recommendation. It's basically uh, a benefit to one in 100 at best. And this is the kind of recommendations your doctor is being asked to stick to. He's being asked to stick to recommendations that at most would help one in 100 of those who were subjected to them, if that. With the flu shot here, you've got basically no evidence of benefit uh, at all. And yet this is a, a recommendation your doctor is compelled to follow. No wonder healthcare is not that effective. Here is uh, another grade B uh, recommendation. And this is a recommendation for uh, depression, for screening of patients who suffer from depression. And so the point is that uh, doctors in their medical practice have depressed people, and so they should... Uh, there's been evidence to show that screening should be done. So uh, here we go. Primary care doctors should screen for depression. And what they have found is 7% of people in the United States meet the criteria for a depressive disorder. And according to review of evidence in the panel conducted before making this proposal, and so the benefits of effective screening and treatment for depression in the United States population are likely significant. And doctors can screen for depression in their offices using a nine-question patient health questionnaire. The majority of people are not depressed, but some people are, especially in the postpartum period. So it's very important to identify that something is going on and get effective treatment. And so the treatments for depression include antidepressant medications, psychotherapy, or both. And so the benefits of effective treatment among women may be, may be, that means it may not be, especially important. Again, this is grade B, right? So grade B means passable, acceptable, maybe, maybe not. According to uh, Marina of Columbia Psychiatry and New York State Psychiatric Institute in New York. So there's good data to show that, showing now that if a woman is depressed and you can treat her, that you will have a big effect on her children. I guess so, especially if she's postpartum and breastfeeding, the kids get the medicines too. It's important, she added, that doctors who screen for depression must also have time to treat and manage people who need it. So depression screening could be routine, the way you screen for hypertension, and this includes, that includes time to sort out what brought it on and severity. And the new proposal is a grade B recommendation, which means there's at least moderate certainty moderate certainty, not high certainty, but moderate certainty, that the benefit will be moderate to substantial. And so under the Affordable Care Act, known as Obamacare, grade A and B recommendations from the preventative task force are covered without cost to the patients. And so we have here a grade B recommendation. Now, this is the same... uh, Medicine news feed, right? And they have another story. And what is the story? Antidepressant use linked to increased brain bleed risk. And you read all this, you go down, 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 down. And what you're basically looking at here is between 1 and 3.76% of people who take antidepressants develop microbleeds in their brain. In other words, about half of these ladies are going to get microbleeds in their brain, a little less than half. And so we have a grade B recommendation leading to this type of consequence or outcome. And again, because it's grade B, what does that mean? Well, it means that your doctor is obligated to do it. And if he doesn't do it, he has to engage in a um, pretty lengthy dialogue about why he chose not to. Like, what was he thinking? So, another grade B recommendation. 
Uh, let me just check the chat room, see how we're doing with comments and questions here. We've got a couple more to do. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, there's a lot of questions here. So let me just go through a few of them, and then we'll go back to our next two grade B recommendations if we have time. Doctors routinely explain this to their patients, right? No, they do not. They absolutely do not. Uh, we are told in medical school not to share this type of information with our patients because the patients are not educated enough to understand it. So because the patients are uneducated, because they've not gone to medical school, because they are so ignorant, they, they wouldn't know how to handle this type of information. And it might cause them to refuse the recommended therapy. Although the word, the term, the buzzword is, they might refuse needed therapy. And so really what's going on is the patient might not cooperate with the doctor's recommendation. The doctor says to the patient, well, you know, you have a chance of one in 100 of possibly benefiting from this test we're going to order. Do you think you want it? And so, let's see. And so, is this why, okay. So this person says, this is why I vehemently object to the term layman or layperson applied to anyone. You know, layperson, layman might be not a good term. Maybe you'll find it insulting because of IQ or suggesting a layperson doesn't know something. But I suggest to you a more dangerous term is the term patient. And so when we doctors are trained, we are trained that there's this thing called a patient. And this patient is a child in an adult body. And this child cannot handle certain information. And therefore, we are not to share that information. And with grade B recommendations, the doctor is protected from failure to disclose, right? Because it's a standard of care. Therefore, if he does, if he performs a standard of care, then he cannot be sued or found responsible. So, <laughs> all right. What would you be your opinion of an old-time diabetic? I don't know what that is. Diagnosed diabetic type 1 and type 2. I don't understand that question either. How often are cases of influenza actually confirmed? Um, almost never. Almost never. Uh, when I was in medical practice, um, it was in the 90s when this whole big flu vaccine thing was really getting ginned up and... Um, the flu drugs were just beginning to be introduced, the anti-flu uh, drugs. And I was really excited. Wait a minute. We have culture and sensitivities for pneumonia. Excuse me. What is our our corresponding viral culture or viral test? Like, um, uh, uh, we don't have any. You just, just give this drug to everybody. And I said, hmm. So I gave the flu drugs, I think about twice, I didn't notice that anyone got better, so I just stopped. Like this, is it true for type 1 diabetics that medication would not be beneficial for longevity? Um, I don't think so. I think type 1 is a different case. Um, in terms of the research, it's believed that for type 1, the drugs do help that type 1 diabetics live longer. Um, my observation for type 1 diabetics, though, is they seem to have more complications of therapy. Because of the tight control, they have more um, fainting spells, passing out. You know, it's just a more treacherous situation. So as far as the medical position on type 1 um, diabetics, um, it's not clear how valid the medical industrial complex's position is on that. And many type 1 diabetics, uh, because they're younger, they tend to uh, drink alcohol and take their insulin and then, that you know, they die. 
So this person says, Dr. Downs, can a person become diabetic by merely going on a drinking binge and then heal a diabetes by cutting back their drinking? Absolutely. Um, in fact, they even have a name for us called alcoholic diabetes. And um, many people simply, when they go on a binge, they become diabetic. When they stop drinking, the diabetes goes away. And so, absolutely, this is uh, a medically recognized phenomenon, as a matter of fact. Okay. All right, so we have a little more time, 10 minutes, so we can do another grade B recommendation. All right, breast cancer screening. Ha-ha, it's a grade B recommendation. Yes, three, Bob. Breast cancer screening is a grade B recommendation. And I'll just give you the recommendations. There is no requirement for routine screening mammography in women aged 40 to 49 because it has a grade C recommendation, which means it's of no use and might be harmful. So the decision to start regular every two-year screening mammography before age 50 should be an individual one and should take into account patient context, including the patient's values, regarding specific benefits and harms. In other words, you can offer this to the patient, even though it's harmful, if the patient is okay with the harm. Hmm. Every two-year screening mammography for women between ages 50 and 74 years has a grade B recommendation. In other words, there's social evidence, maybe it's okay. And there's not enough current evidence to assess the additional benefits and harms of screening mammograms in women aged 75 or older. In other words, there is not enough evidence after at least 40 years of mammograms to indicate that women over 75 years old would or would not benefit from it. There's also not enough evidence to assess the additional benefits and harms of either digital mammography or MRI instead of film mammogram. Now, this is shocking because now we're trying to get women to get MRIs, which is a $1,000 to $5,000, $1,000 to $10,000 test to screen for breast cancer. And the final recommendation is there's not enough evidence to support that. And there's no requirement for the clinicians to teach women how to do breast self-exam. This has a grade D, which means clearly harmful recommendation based on studies that found that teaching breast self-exam did not reduce breast cancer mortality, but instead resulted in additional imaging procedures and biopsies. Raise my hand, I had one. Yes, I can tell you. And those are ugly scars. So women's breast self-exam, your doctor should not be teaching you breast self-exam. There's also not enough evidence to assess the additional benefits and harms of clinical breast examination beyond screening mammography in women aged 40 years or older. In other words, if your doctor is touching your breast and you're over 40 years old, it's just fondling. It's, it's all it is because here's the recommendations. There's no evidence to suggest that a self-breast exam or a doctor breast exam is beneficial. This is shocking. So, Although mammography remains the most cost-effective approach for breast cancer screening, the sensitivity and specificity are not ideal. So sensitivity, 67.8%, that means it's only going to detect 67% of breast cancers. And specificity, which means it's only going to detect 75% of true negatives, 25% is going to be false positives. That's awesome. That's <laughs> Shocking. So mammography combined with clinical breast exam slightly improved sensitivity of 77.4% with a modest reduction in specificity. So this is, is, uh, is shocking. So if you're getting a mammogram, you're definitely engaging in, at best, a grade B recommendation. You may even be the subject of a grade C or D recommendation. Better yet, one that has absolutely no evidence whatever. And no evidence at all means you might as well have the guy down the block do the breast self-exam or fondling. There's just no evidence that your doctor fondling your boobs is beneficial to you if you're over 40. 
Oh, I'd like to take a pause here to invite people to visit vitalitycapsules.com and sign up for our free report, Remedies So Powerfully Could Make Antibiotics Obsolete. So, log on over, get onto our list, and find out also about my new program I'm starting to help you become the healer in your home. Yes, that's right. You're right there, you're in the home, and you get there before the ambulance does, and you can do a lot in 20 minutes. In fact, more than most hospitals can do in four days. And so that's what my new program is aimed at, is making you the healer in your home, so you can help yourself and your family escape the 40% killing by medicine. So 40% of all Americans meet their fate, their death, at the hands of the medical industrial complex, not their disease. But you don't have to live that way or die that way. So go on over to vitalitycapsule.com, sign up for the list if you haven't already done so, and we'll keep you informed about that program. Okay, we have, whoops, five more minutes. This is, if people have questions, this is a good time to uh, ask them. I'm going to check on over <laughs> to uh, the chat room. Sometimes I miss my question. Now, sometimes people ask a question about some kind of uh, health concern or something. I just like to say this is a radio show. I can answer some few easy questions, but, uh, you know, nothing uh, nothing heavy. So here's, a, here's an easy one. Hi, Dr. Daniels. In your opinion, what might cause sporadic spotting or even full periods years after menopause, and how does a 61-year-old lady fix it? Well, again, this is not medical advice. Consult your doctor. If you believe what I say, you believe it's your own risk. I accept no responsibility. Okay, having said that, though, um, if you're 61 years old and you're having spotting, most likely it's your it's your dairy intake. So you're eating um, more dairy products than what your body likes. That's number one. Or number two, you're eating meat that is contaminated with estrogen. So you're eating meat that has been injected with um, basically um, high-dose estrogen and growth hormones. And so definitely uh, stop that, and that should go a long way towards uh, solving the problem. Okay, so we have three minutes left, and I'd just like to mention the blockbuster winner, which is cholesterol screening. This is grade B, grade B recommendation. And I just want to do a little bit of math for you in the next three minutes that we have. Cholesterol screening is recommended for people who have a 10% risk of of a heart attack in the next 10 years. That's a 1% per year risk. If you have a heart attack, we have a 4.5% chance of death. So 1% times 4.5%. Um, and so basically it's 4.5 people per 10,000 per year uh, are going to die of a, heart, of a heart attack. And so what the cholesterol drugs will do, even if they do prevent 100% of these heart attacks, they are literally going to, to at best benefit four people per Ten hundred thousand, and this is shocking when you realize that eighty people per ten thousand die every year of just uh, just being alive. So the relative benefit of this uh, improvement of cholesterol screening is actually pretty small, just because the group is not very well selected here, pushing the one percent per year risk. And what you're trying to prevent is also very small as well. So the uh, other issue, of course, is the side effect profile with uh, statins. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, so let's see. Uh, chat room says, Dr. Dan, I just wanted to point out that Charlie Sheen appears to be playing out as HIV victim-survivor champion role. <laughs> All right. Okay, wonderful. Well, that is it. That is it for today. And as always, think happens. Don't let yourself become a victim of grade B therapy. As uh, Nancy Reagan would say, just say no to drugs. And that is about it. We'll see you next week. 
And do stop by in vitalitycapsules.com and sign up for remedies so powerful they could make antibiotics obsolete. They certainly did for my patients. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC.